You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 380 of this podcast. Today is April 29th, 2022. We skipped right over yesterday, I'll be honest. It was a busy day. My first day back to work, I was a bit tired, trying to conserve my energy. And also, I just didn't have time before I left for the office. It turns out I maybe didn't have to go to the office. I was told nobody would be there, but then... Actually, a fair number of people were there, and in any event, it was good that I went to the office. I'm glad that I did, but it ended up being a a pretty whirlwind afternoon into the evening, and I did not get a chance to record an episode, and that's just fine. That's all right. Sometimes you just got to prioritize, and not everything gets done in a day, and Rome wasn't built in a day. Not that we're building Rome, but you take the meaning. But in this episode, I want to talk a little bit about this disinformation governance board that has just been announced. We have been talking a lot here lately about Twitter and about social media and about big tech, and hopefully you guys aren't tired of talking about it. You're probably getting inundated by everybody else talking about these things as well. So we will talk about everything and not just social media and not just big tech. For instance, we'll talk about Johnny the Walrus by Matt Walsh. Children's book, or is it? There is some controversy, allegedly, regarding Johnny the Walrus by Matt Walsh. Certainly looks like a children's book to me. It's a board book. My children have read it. But what makes something a children's book? Well, if you ask the folks over at Amazon, they don't think that this is a children's book. In fact, they don't necessarily think that this is appropriate for anybody to be reading. They are kind of freaking out. They're having meltdowns over at Amazon over having to handle and ship Johnny the Walrus. Johnny the Walrus is selling like hotcakes very successfully. And some folks who work for Amazon think that that is not so good. Maybe we should not be selling this. Maybe we should reclassify it. Maybe we should not allow the Daily Wire and Matt Walsh to run advertisements for Johnny the Walrus. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe we shouldn't classify this or allow it to be classified as a children's book. Hmm. Interesting. It's almost like Amazon.com has similar issues to what YouTube had in recent years, has had, still has, with regards to the likes of PragerU. Dennis Prager has this great brand, this great channel, this great thing that he 
has had going online for a few years now, where he invites people on to do these short little summary five-minute videos, almost like an apologetics talk at our youth group that I gave here recently, although I went over, I went well over the amount of time that I was supposed to have. I was supposed to have 10 minutes or so, and I ended up going for 20, and that was unintentional, and I feel bad about it, but I would rather go over and be clearer than be too brief, and everybody is scratching their head. Even as it was, I did not go into near as much depth as I could have. Some people are going to come away from a presentation on why are there so many denominations, Christian denominations specifically, and they're going to say, I didn't understand anything you were talking about. I don't even know what a denomination is still, because I was not listening when you defined what a denomination is. And I don't know what a denomination is or why I should care. just went right over my head. Uh, So 20 minutes was way too long because you lost me early on and you never got me back. Other people will say, that was really great. I'm just sad that it was so short. I wish I could have gotten more out of it. I wish I could have gotten more of it. But PragerU, PragerU did these videos, has done these videos. They're still out there. They do these videos. And YouTube started age-restricting these PragerU videos, not because they're explicit, not because they feature gratuitous displays of sex and violence, but because YouTube's political bias feels threatened by what it is that Dennis Prager and his guests are putting down, what they're putting out there. So, for instance, PragerU did a video on the Ten Commandments. And because they talked about thou shalt not murder, YouTube claimed that they were flagging and age-restricting the video because the topic was violence. And you scratch your head and you say, well, how could any reasonable person defend that? How could any reasonable person claim that telling people to not murder is a gratuitous display of violence? How, How does that work? Well, we just don't talk about violence. That's how serious we are. If we just avoid even talking about it, well, then problem solved, really. So at what age will it be okay to talk with children about not murdering one another? And for that matter, maybe when you do see news stories about children murdering other children, maybe the children already are exposed to violence and the antidote is not silencing and suppressing and censoring Prager U when they're telling kids, not just kids, but kids also, not to murder because God said so. You know, maybe the solution is not to censor Prager U. Maybe actually you should be encouraging more content like that. Just a thought. But Amazon, for their part, very much of a piece uh, in its leadership with Twitter. Twitter's freaking out that that platform may now be free speech for real, for reals this time. And the Biden administration has 
created a, and I quote, disinformation governance board. And they have appointed a gal who has gone on the record for not being the biggest champion of free speech. She is definitely of the left, and she's definitely one of the cognitive dissonance type uh, lefties who, when it comes to other countries where we want to see regime change, uh, she is very quick to champion free speech and the right of people to object to how their government is uh, relating to them and their civil liberties. And she did a interview slash video a few years back talking about color revolutions and how governments can't just oppress their people forever. At a certain point, people get fed up with being silenced and not heard, and they overthrow their governments, and that's just what it has to be, right? Like, that's just what it is. If you don't want your government to be overthrown, well, don't be tyrannical and oppressive and uh, don't abuse the people you're supposed to be governing. Don't reward those who do evil and punish those who do good. Very simple. But now she's going to say something very opposite with regards to our government, of course, and the favored progressive governments around the world, particularly with our government, though, so long as Democrats have the reins of power. No, 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 you can't disagree with what we're putting out there. No, no, you can't disagree with what we're doing. No, no, no. You can't do some independent journalism and do an expose and talk about maybe laptops that were forgotten at repair shops by crackhead sons of our current current president or candidates for president or candidates for other political office. No, you can't talk about that. That is misinformation, disinformation. So what is it? What is it about disinformation and misinformation that is concerning for conservatives? Because if you're a moderate, if you're out there and you just have not really been paying attention or you have been getting your news from a variety of sources as you see it with a view to being as nonpartisan as possible, something important to note here is that isn't any guarantee that you're going to be more objective and have a better idea of what's going on. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if I conducted a survey of a mixed group of people, and I just take a random sample, but I'm going to try and get everybody's views represented. And let's say I ask a representative of... Uh, the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, what they would define free speech as. And they give me XYZ definition. And then I go and I ask uh, somebody with RT, you know, the Russian state news media, uh, ask them how they would define free speech. What is free speech? What is permissive what is permittable? What is disinformation? What is misinformation? And they give me such and such a definition. And then I go to the Taliban and I ask them what their definition is of misinformation and disinformation. And 
let's suppose I go to uh, some Ministry of Truth personnel with Emmanuel Macron's government in France and ask them. And, oh, for good measure, why don't I ask somebody with the government of Justin Trudeau's Canada? And they give me such and such a definition. You know, and, and then I'm going to go and I'm going to find a libertarian and I'll find a Bernie bro and I'll find an establishment Republican and I'll find a hardcore feminist and, you know, then maybe, maybe I'll throw in just for anyhow, not the bee, right? And, and let's say I, I count noses and I see, you know, where there is the most overlap but that's my representative sample. Uh, what kind of a definition, aggregate definition of misinformation and disinformation am I going to get? And also, how much is going to be left of what we regard uh, in my way of thinking as free speech? Uh, you're free to say what you want, uh, so long as it does not offend uh, all of these people over here. And, and they're all triggered by different things, by the way. So actually, you know what? Why, why don't we just not talk? How about that? You're, you're free to not talk. You're free to not speak. That's not free speech. That is not free speech. Uh, and also, too, I mean, you know, put aside the question of who's offended. Now, this question of what is misinformation and what is disinformation, uh, what it really boils down to is we disagree, and we don't like you saying that, and it's inconvenient to our plans. And so we're going to say it's going to be destabilizing, but what is really meant is it's inconvenient to our plans that you would expose these things. I mean, really, truly, how fishy is it that Twitter did not only censor the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story, but they also locked the New York Post out of their Twitter account. And you literally could not share it. You literally could not. I tried. I tried just for anyhow. I was like, oh, I wonder if that's for real. Like People are saying you can't even share it. And sure enough, no, you can't. You flat out cannot share that story. Or you couldn't in the lead up to the 2020 election. That was part of the reason why I deleted my Twitter. But you couldn't share it. And then a year and a half into... Joe Biden's presidency, because he somehow, some way, supposedly got more votes than anybody in American history has ever gotten. The best explanation anybody can give is that he wasn't Donald Trump. And then you start to see the mainstream media pick up on the Hunter Biden laptop story being valid and not fake news and not Russian disinformation, misinformation. But by then, the window of opportunity has passed for providing accountability without interference. So here's the question. If Hunter Biden's laptop story is not now regarded as misinformation and disinformation, was it ever? It was claimed that it needed to be censored because it maybe represented Russian misinformation, disinformation, campaigns meddling in our election. And then when that turns out to not be the case, who is watching the watchers? Who is 
saying to the folks who are claiming misinformation and disinformation, actually, that is misinformation. You are misinforming people. And what recourse is there to have them held accountable? Because then, too, like once they control who gets to say what, and here's what we'll do to you if you say it anyways, what we told you not to say, you know, once they've established that position and that power, well, then when you come back later and you say, well, it can't be both, right? It can't have been misinformation back then and now no longer misinformation because it turns out that it's true. If you say that, if you say, well, it was actually misinformation, the misinformation involved in this actually was you guys claiming that that was misinformation, and it wasn't. That was a very important piece of the puzzle that voters needed to know about. That was actually the media, that was actually our news media doing its job there, and you stopped them. Oh, they also can say, well, that's misinformation, that you're saying that we were misinforming people, disinforming people. And then they can silence you on that point. And so what this really amounts to is Elon Musk buys Twitter. And one of the things that is apparent is that the next time there's a story like Hunter Biden's laptop story, Elon Musk is not going to, so long as he's in charge, he's not going to allow for it to be censored. He's not going to allow for the New York Post to have their account suspended. And so the story is going to spread as virally as the public wants it to. If people are really, really interested in it, they're going to share it and they're going to read it and they're going to, they're going to talk about it, talk freely about it. And so then the Biden administration, no funny business here at all, no conflict of interest here at all, no untoward motives at all, is going to create a disinformation governance board under the Department of Homeland Security. Is it just me or is there an appearance of impropriety here, an appearance of conflict of interest? At about the same time that we're going to be seeing Republicans retaking the House and the Senate, if there is any justice, then endeavoring to impeach Biden and anybody connected with fraud during the 2020 election, also perhaps investigating scandals with regards to withholding foreign aid to Ukraine years ago when Biden was vice president under Barack Obama and his son sat on the board of a Ukrainian gas company and they were being investigated and Joe Biden threatened to withhold aid if the prosecutor was not fired. Is it possible just maybe that when things like that are going to be investigated, this is an end run being made around efforts at holding the Biden administration accountable. Very thinly disguised as concerns about Russia. Everything is Russia, 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 Russia. Well, it seems to me like you guys maybe gave Russia the green light. It, it seems to me like you threatened Ukraine with leaving them high and dry in exchange for favors which were handsomely rewarded. That's how it seems.
I talk with my brother, for instance, and he's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I think Biden's been doing a great job on Ukraine. And there's nothing he's done on this that I, uh, I haven't approved of. I, th- I think he's doing a great job. I think you know, he's really standing up to Putin. You know, he just said the other day, walk softly and carry a big javelin, which is awesome, right? It's a playoff of Theodore Roosevelt's line, walk softly and carry a big stick, walk softly and carry a big javelin. Ah, see, right? He's, that's tough. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, but he helped to create the conditions in which this would happen so that it could deflect attention away from Democrats having really, really hurt a lot of American men, women, and children. Just change the subject. Change the subject to some new dumpster fire that you yourself created the fire triangle for. And it doesn't matter that this kid playing with matches happens to be the one who actually set it off. You're the one who filled the dumpster with gasoline and newspaper and junky boards knowing full well that this kid here is a little bit of a pyro and and if you turn your if you turn your back turn look the other way for a little bit 5 minutes you can rely on him to strike a match oh but now now you're the hero right that's that's what it is you're the hero and so you're going to swoop in and you're going to put out the fire and you're actually the good guy in the story. Oh, oh, and if we if we say that maybe that doesn't add up based on the history here, because we've got the receipts, then that must be Russian disinformation, misinformation. You've got a governance board under the Department of Homeland Security to address that. Okay, gotcha. Totally legit. Yeah, I feel like this has been the plot of some movies, hasn't it? I mean, where where the <clears throat> the supposed hero turns out to be actually creating the disasters that he himself is uh, saving everyone from. Wasn't that like Megamind or something like that where that was happening? Where it was like, oh man, good thing I saved you. It's like, yeah, but you, you, she, she was only in danger because you intentionally, like you, you put her in a position where you would have to save her. Like that doesn't make you the hero. That makes you a sadistic monster. That makes you a vainglorious egotistical jerk that makes you the villain not the hero what's wrong with you you're you're an abusive jerk not a hero your capacity to silence anybody who says otherwise is just further proof you're threatening to silence anybody who says otherwise it's just further proof that you're not the hero you're you're the bad guy here and all the while the funny thing is there's a post at not to be about all this, this ministry of truth. Jesse James posted yesterday, 8.52 a.m. Guys, I think we just got a ministry of truth. And there is a tweet that is featured in the post. Uh, It's actually a retweet by Cernovich of a post by Nina Jankovics, who is uh, the one who uh, is going to be heading up this Ministry of Truth, and I was going to try and click into it because it looks interesting. It's it's her. It's a video of her talking about color revolutions and 
why the U.S. isn't a candidate for one, which is always a great sign, right? Like when you have to tell people, when, when that is a question that needs to be answered, uh, are we possibly going to see a color revolution here? No, I really don't think so. And here I'm going to have to tell you at length why. Uh, huh. Okay. Interesting. Well, I was going to try and watch the video, uh, but it turns out when I click play, uh, the link wants to take me, instead of playing it in the not to be post here, the link wants to take me to Twitter. And then what do you know? Uh, it won't play because what greets me? And I'll just, I'll do it again right now. I click in and then Twitter starts to load. And then it says, thanks for your appeal. You appealed one tweet, Garrett Ashley Mullet at Mullet underscore Garrett. And then my tweet reads as follows from March 26th at 11.27 a.m. At Chris Jolly Hale, I say this with respect. What a retarded thing to say. Please note that while we review your appeal, you won't be able to access your Twitter account. We'll take a look and we'll respond as soon as possible. If you'd rather just delete the content, you can cancel your appeal. So I can cancel my appeal. In the meantime, my 12-hour suspension is now one month and three days, one month and half a week in, and you you haven't responded except to that first appeal, and it was very quick. It was a very quick response of, nope, you're guilty, next. And then I appeal it again and just crickets. And I actually, I appealed again the other day and still crickets, no response. But what do you do? Something tells me that this right here, this thanks for your appeal that shows up when I would actually like to watch this video and know about what's going on, this kind of thanks for your appeal is exactly what you'll get from this DHS disinformation governance board. And the crazy thing about it is when they lock you out of these platforms, they don't just lock you out from being able to speak. They also lock you out from being aware of what's going on. I mean, so many articles these days feature people's tweets, almost like asking the man on the street, you know, when I was growing up, that's what you know, news anchors might do. They might go out and about town, and I'm sure they still do that, but you know, when it's a, a printed article, this is kind of the way that it's going more and more, is they just will highlight several tweets that they found from various figures uh, as the next best thing to quoting that person. Or it's like proof positive, like, no, they really did say this. We're not taking them out of context. Here's their tweet in response to such and such an event or news that just broke or whatever. And then if you have a video or if you if you wanted to just read the rest of the Twitter thread, the tweet thread, <clears throat> uh, you can't if you are suspended from Twitter for telling Chris Hale, Christopher Hale in Tennessee, that he said a retarded thing. You know, and, and meanwhile, like I really don't know what to make of this Nina Yankiewicz. Uh, she's got kind of a, I don't know, just, just kind of a um, an unsettling look about her in some of these pictures of her uh, her portraits, I guess you could say. You know, there's a, a big one here that she posted. 
here's my official portrait to grab your attention. Now that I've got it, a huge focus of our work, and indeed one of the key reasons the board was established, is to maintain the department's commitment to protecting free speech, privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties. See, this is double speak, actually. So they are protecting free speech, privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties by silencing conservatives. Get it? Yes, because it's actually conservatives writing books like Johnny the Walrus who are suppressing free speech. We're, we're, we're suppressing free speech because we're speaking freely and it makes leftists feel dumb and angry and they don't know what to do so they just can't even. They literally lose their ability to even. And next thing you know, uh, whole new departments get formed within departments, within departments, like Russian nesting dolls. What do you do? What do you do? Before we run out of time for this episode, I'm going to switch gears and stop talking about Matt Walsh's book and stop talking about Hunter Biden's laptop and stop talking about Twitter and Elon Musk. And I want to just share with you a little bit that I just recently wrote in, and this is why we got married, this book that I'm working on. Uh, Life was really busy for several weeks, and so I didn't make progress on it until this last hitch on, but I did make progress on it, and I've caught up uh, pretty well to where I was scheduling myself to be at the beginning of the year. And I want to read for you from chapter six, what the declining divorce rate belies. And bear in mind, uh, this still has editing to go through. Uh, I'm going to clean it up and polish it, but, but some of the substance here I think is worth noting. And it's food for thought, at least, uh, when someone maybe wonders uh, why why we need another book on marriage. Well, for one, uh, we don't have any books on marriage by me. Uh, so that's, that's point number one. Uh, but point number two is we have a different issue now, I think. It's a, it's a morphing of other issues that we've had with regards to marriage over the past several decades. But, it, but it's a new issue. It's a new problem, and it's kind of a chimera it's kind of a combination of several problems with regards to marriage that have kind of built up and accumulated into one big hairy problem. But here is chapter six. I'll just read it for you. And uh, those of you who like statistics, you'll be happy to know we are talking about statistics here in chapter six, what the declining divorce rate belies. The divorce rate in the U.S. is going down, and that's nice. Divorce is an ugly, tragic business. Who but the devil wouldn't want to see less of it? And in fact, the divorce rate is going down quite a lot. According to Statista, the divorce rate in 1990, when my younger brother Bryce was born, was approximately 4.7 per 1,000. By 2020, just 30 years later, the divorce rate in the U.S. dropped to a mere 2.3 per 1,000. But wait, just hold the phone a minute. Before you go celebrating, there is an important detail to unpack regarding the statistics here. The divorce rate is going down because fewer young people are getting married to begin with. And not only are fewer young people in America getting married in the first place, those young people who are getting married are doing so a fair bit later in life, waiting 
until they've finished getting their education and established themselves in their careers, 29 years old for women and 30 years old for men. Is this really a win for marriage then? Have we cracked the code and learned the lessons from our parents' generations? Well, maybe. We have at least learned some lessons. Whether they were the right lessons or not remains to be seen, particularly if many of those giving up on marriage are not similarly giving up on cohabitation. And as it turns out, they're not. In fact, living with an unmarried life partner surpassed living with a spouse as of 2018, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. That is to say, more young people are living with a significant other than are getting married. For those of you interested in the hard numbers, four years ago, they were 9% and 7% respectively for 18 to 24-year-olds, unmarried cohabiting versus living together in marriage. Meanwhile, 25 to 34-year-olds looked a lot better at 40.3% and 14.8%. By contrast, though, those statistics in 1968 were 81.5% and 0.2% for the 25 to 34 age group and 39.2% to 0.1% for 18 to 24-year-olds. Read that again. And no, it is not a typo. In 1968, the percentages of 18 to 24 and 25 to 34-year-olds cohabiting with an unmarried partner were not 10% and 20%. They weren't even 1% and 2%. They were 0.1% and 0.2%. Extremely negligible, relatively speaking. We're talking 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 500 just 50 years ago compared with roughly 1 in 10 and 3 in 20 young people today. So, great. Young people are waiting to get married until they finish college and get their professional life off the ground. whoop de doo Maybe, if what we believe is most important for our children is that they receive a good education and a diploma certifying the same, we can shrug and be content. And maybe, if what we believe is most important is that our young people are successful in their careers, working satisfying and prestigious jobs they enjoy and are compensated well for, we need say no more about it. But something has happened in the past five decades to radically change our attitudes towards marriage and divorce and cohabitation. And I do not think we should either shrug or be content about it. To my mind, as a Christian, the scriptures regarding marriage and family are no less relevant given these trends. Perhaps, rather, all the more, they bear mentioning. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Do we quietly attach an asterisk and tack on an addendum that he who finishes degree programs finds a better thing? Or do we suppose that he who climbs his way up the corporate ladder into a premium salaried position should prefer that to taking a bride? Apparently so, on the macro at least. But what is it all for anyway? And for the Christian parent advising their young adult children to finish college and establish their career, the moving of goalposts in recent decades is worth pointing out. By that, I mean that the cost of a four-year degree from the typical American college or university has also gone way up in the past 50 years. Education Data Initiative reports that from 2019 to 20, the average annual cost of college tuition and fees per year at a public college was 9349 rising to a whopping 32769 for private colleges, Adjusted for inflation, those same numbers in 1969 to 1970 were 
2,440 and 10,636. Could there be a connection here? I think so. And were I to speculate the fact that college students calculating how long it will take them after college to pay those debts off or else what sort of income they will need in order to service their loans invariably will cause many to pause at the thought of marrying before finishing their degree program and establishing themselves in their careers. But I think another strong possibility is that we have correlation here without causation and that the cost of tuition has gone up three or fourfold in 50 years for the same reasons the marriage rate among 18 to 34-year-olds has been halved in the same period. Our priorities as a people and culture have shifted dramatically and not for the better. Yes, yes, you responsible conservative Christian types out there will point out that we are told more in the scriptures than just that it is good to find a wife and be married. You will point out that we are told to study to show ourselves approved workmen and to get knowledge and understanding and that the man who does not provide for the needs of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. But to that, I will return a two-part question about what is coming next in America when a significant global recession is being predicted due to out-of-control government spending and the printing of money plus lockdowns and supply chain issues and when all of the fundamentals of human nature which the Apostle Paul was talking to and taking into account when he wrote about marriage are no less applicable to us than they were his audience of Christian brothers and sisters two millennia ago. It was Paul who openly admitted he would prefer that everyone was content being single like he was, thereby they could serve the Lord with fewer distractions and more energy. But what else did he say? If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And this is not what we tell our young people. Instead, we think like the progressives and liberal Christians in one of a couple ways. For one, we suppose we can make young adult human nature better, or at least other than what it is by God's design, and we consequently shame young people for not being more self-controlled, even questioning their salvation and whether they really love their significant others if they do not wait for years to marry. Or if we do not do that, we shrug and make excuses and allowances for our young people falling into temptation and sexual immorality. We define down degeneracy and get with the times. We say that such and such is just how young people are these days. And while in both cases we might emphasize very convincingly how we do not approve, yet our children are no longer under our authority anymore, we all the while conveniently neglect to mention that it was the elders of our young adults who did so much to create the very conditions which so exasperated and frustrated them and contributed to their being sorely tempted. It was the older generations who placed such heavy burdens on these young people to get increasingly cost-prohibitive and worthless higher education before slaving away in loneliness to pay back student loan debts most of them should have never taken on to begin with. It was the older generations also who elected representatives who drove up both the national debt and inflation to unsustainable levels and keep on doing so, it should be added. And those same elected representatives and spokespeople and sages contributed to rising costs of tuition, even as the courses of study became decreasingly practical and profitable. And for what? Sadly, the answer all too often has been the prestige and comfort of the older generations who prioritized their own happiness and bragging rights to their friends and associates about the accomplishments of their children over the holistic happiness and well-being 
physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and even financial of those same adult children. Many conservative parents in America have told their daughters that feminism is bad, all the while not so subtly encouraging those same daughters to hedge their bets and get a diploma and career built up. You know, just in case. Maybe their daughters will marry a loser and it won't work out and they'll need to work and support themselves and their children after all. And after all, what kind of troglodyte would be opposed to women getting an education? Never minding that the student loan payments will keep on being due month after month for years to come when the tuition is at such and such a level and those same payments will need to either be made by the daughter who finished her degree program and now has a career or else will have to be serviced by her husband if the two have children and elect that what is best for said children is for the wife and mother to stay home to raise and educate them while the future son-in-law works. What we find, therefore, is that a young couple who follows these American norms in the first quarter of the 21st century will not just have between $42,544 and $131,076 in student loan debt hanging over them at the close of a four-year program. They will actually have between $85,088 and $262,152 to pay back between the two of them. In not a few corners of the United States, that would be enough for the newlywed couple to buy their first home together, even at today's prices. But now, they are on the horns of a dilemma. Do they hold off on getting married for several years while they work devilishly hard to pay the debt burden down? Maybe they get married anyways and hold off on having children for several years while they both work full-time with as much overtime as they can manage. Or do they get married and content themselves to have children, come what may, resigning themselves to the newly minted husband and father servicing the student loan debt for the both of them while the young woman stops working? Or perhaps they have a child or two and take off only the minimum leave required to have the baby and recover physically before hiring daycare to watch their children when they are young and cart them off to public schools once they get to about five years of age. For the young Christian couple in America in particular, the perverse trap is that they often face opposition and godly counsel in their church and from their parents and pastors in the form of advice and concerns that they should wait and wait and wait on both marriage and having children or else subcontract all of what was formerly in ages past considered marriage and parenting to hirelings. And if they buck this advice and get married and have children anyways and struggle, what is their recourse? Both their maturity and even the sincerity of their profession of Christian faith is sometimes called into question. Do they appeal to the scriptures to stand on principle that it is better to marry than it is to burn with lust, or that children are a blessing from the Lord? Then they are told that this is surely not what the Apostle Paul or any other biblical author meant, even if we can't quite account for why. But if they get married and have children anyway, throwing in the towel on college or career in the interest of family, we say they are being irresponsible and even ungodly, in that direction. Or else we shake our heads and pity them because they will have a long, hard road to hoe. All the while, what is conveniently neglected is that the earth for them has been sown with salt, with heavy rocks sprinkled in for good measure. But if they let go all of the above here and focus on their education and career and dating around, some say they're being impatient and carnal. And if they get carried away and overly physical, or even live together for lack of a blessing and acceptance of any inclination to marriage, we pray for them, be warmed and filled, or some such. 
dare I say it, perhaps we should not be so quick to question their spiritual maturity and godliness and wisdom. Instead, if we were to judge with less partiality and less by appearances, we might have to concede that it was their guides and counselors who swallowed up the course of their paths and misled them, forbidding them to marriage and strongly discouraging them from having children, etc. And this is why we got married. And there you go. That's that. Cut, as they say. That is from my forthcoming book. It still has perhaps some work that needs to be done to it, editing, refining, whatnot. But that is chapter six, what the declining divorce rate belies from what I hope to be publishing, uh, maybe even on Lauren's and my 16th anniversary. I had just turned 16 when we met. We will celebrate 16 years of marriage this November. That might be kind of a nice time to mark with uh, publishing this book. But, you know, it's a funny thing. I'll say this in closing before I let you go. You know, I write this, and I'm writing this, and I'm addressing it, and it is personal for me. It's very, very personal, because this was our story. We were dating. We were friends, and then kind of frenemies, and then patched things up, started getting along better, started talking. And next thing you know, people are asking if we're dating. No, 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 of course not. Don't be silly. And then the more people ask, the more we realize this is actually very helpful and beneficial. At a certain point we say, you know what, maybe maybe we should pray and ask the Lord if he wants us to be together. And for my part, you know, I think I think the very confusing thing is that you know, when I first approached her, I, I was trying to approach her in high school from pure motives. You know, looking at character, looking at how she related to these kids at Camp Dovetail, kids with special needs, and being so impressed with her way of relating to them. And so then I come back from Camp Dovetail, helping for a week, volunteering for a week, and I ended up messaging her over Yahoo Messenger. That used to be a thing. Some of you are too young to know about Yahoo Messenger, but it used to be a big deal. And I messaged her and I said, hey, you know, I just, uh, I've been wondering, uh, would you be interested in going out with me? I, I think you're great or something like that. I don't remember exactly what I said. You know, so that, like, that was my interest was character, you know, and she ended up having been asked out earlier that day by a friend of ours who was also at our church and in our youth group, Dennis Lunt. And she ended up going out with him. She said yes, she would go out with him first before I had asked her. And so they dated for a while. And I just kind of, like, I honestly was okay. I was content. I was like, oh, okay, well, if if that's who the Lord has for her, then so be it. And I think she's great. And Dennis thinks she's great. And if that's the way that it goes, then I'm content. And I resolved that I was going to be content and try to be content with just following the Lord's leading. And I wanted to focus on praying and asking God for wisdom with regards to what I should do for a career and what I should do after high school as far as going to college. What did I want to go to college for? 
well, I wanted to go to college for whatever the Lord had for me to go to college for, if that makes sense. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to go to college just because everybody was telling me because I didn't want to live my life based on just whatever everybody else is doing. That's what I do. I just follow the crowd, take the safe route. Whatever everybody else is telling me to do, that's what I do because I I can't bear the idea of being rejected or disapproved of. Well, if I were a people pleaser like that, how could I serve God? So that seemed clear from studying the scriptures. I got to pick one. So I'm going to choose to submit this to God. You know, and, and the long and short of it is, you know, I ended up trying to patch some things up with Lauren because we ended up just not being, we, we, we weren't getting along very well. And I, I talked with her and I said, hey, you know, I just, I feel like there's a static. Every time we're at church in proximity or youth group in proximity, like there's just an unpleasantness and can we like can we sit down and talk about that? And so we did. You know, we met up, sat by the creek at Liberty Park in Hillsboro. And and there again, like I felt like I I was working from pure motives. Like, hey, it's not a very good testimony. It's not a good testimony to these other kids who are part of our youth group who go to this church to the adults. It's it's like it's not. I don't think this honors God that we're always kind of bickering back and forth. And I think we should resolve it and we should, we should figure out what the issue is. Like, what is your problem with me? And my, I know my problem with you is my problem with you is that you've got a problem with me. Like what's our, what's our deal? And so then we're, you know, we're talking back and forth about it and we start talking about other things and just kind of the bigger picture and unwrapping what is going on in life. And before we knew it, it was like, you know, Hey, actually this is this is kind of nice. Like this is healthy and helpful. And I don't have any other friendships where we talk about things in a real way and are vulnerable and honest and are real. And I need this actually. And you need this and, and we need more of this. And needless to say, things with Lauren and Dennis didn't work out. They broke up. She broke up with him. He was heartbroken, poor guy. And I, meanwhile, was content. I just, I resolved, I wasn't trying to break them up, by the way, but I resolved that I just wanted to honor God with my life and I wanted to serve the Lord. And so then my plan was, I'm going to be content with being single. I just look for the Lord's leading in life. And so then, what do you know? Lauren reaches out to me and says, you know, hey, I just, I felt like you should know. Again, over Yahoo Messenger. So we were even, but I feel like you should know. I just, you know, I, I keep thinking about you. And, you know, I, I, I prayed about it. And I believe the Lord wants me to let you know that I, I think I've developed feelings for you. And, you know, she tells me this. And my response was, and it wasn't like, I wasn't trying to be vindictive or, you know, pay her back or anything like that, get revenge. But my honest response was, like, I I really value our friendship. And I really don't want to do anything to jeopardize it. And if we were to date, I would worry that that would jeopardize it. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to jeopardize our friendship. Because it's, it, I don't have any other friends that have as easy a time talking with as I do you. And I need this. I need this kind of a friendship. So 
yeah, thanks for telling me, but I I would rather us just be friends. And of course she was bummed out, like super bummed. And of course too, like we kept on being friends and we kept talking and, you know, we would go on walks together, which I didn't think was like the super romantic thing. I thought it was just like, Hey, I, I like talking with you. That's all. Like it's not some scheme, you know, like I'm not plotting here. I just, I, I like talking with you and it's easy to talk when we walk and we're getting exercise and yeah, you know, why not go for a walk and talk? <clears throat> so, you know, the weeks go by and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it, of course, and I'm praying about it. And at a certain point I realize I'm, I'm kind of getting in the way maybe. You know, you know, maybe what the Lord's plan is, if I'm devoting myself to the Lord, maybe what the Lord's plan is, is that Lauren and I are going to be together. You know, God arranges marriages, he, you know. What, what is it from uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Adam and Eve didn't have a matchmaker. Well, but then again, they did. And maybe these two have the same matchmaker. Hmm? <laughs> You know, and, and so, you know, that that's the way I looked at it, genuinely. You know, I, and, and so then we we start answering in the affirmative when people ask, are you guys dating? Yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah, we are. Wait, really? Yeah. We decided we are. And, and in hindsight, it really wasn't, like it really wasn't dating because from the very beginning, it was predicated on something much closer, much like more akin to courtship. Um, not quite, not perfectly, but that's where our heads were at. That's where my head was at anyway. I don't, I don't know. I kind of got the George Bailey treatment a little bit. You know, George Bailey stops by, his mom encourages it, and he stops by at Mary's house. And Mary's mom does not like George for whatever reason. Mary's mother wants Mary to end up with the rich guy who's got his company and moved away from town and, oh, he's calling tonight. Remember, you know, she finds out George is there. What does he want? <laughs> like she's not happy that George has stopped by. So I got a little bit of, of that. Like I was trying to pull something. And meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, like, just, like, I'm not trying to pull anything. I just was trying to be, I was trying to be sociable. I was just trying, I, you know, Fine, I'll go home. But the the really frustrating and disillusioning thing, and, and maybe that's the word for it, not jaded. I'm not bitter like I used to be. I used to be really bitter about this. I'm less and less bitter about it the more I come to terms with it, come to peace with it. But really what it is is it taught me something, that it really doesn't matter how pure your motives are, how genuine and sincere your motives are. If you're totally wanting to live for the Lord, like we're telling our young people to, and then you're reading the scriptures, like we tell our young people to, and then in the scriptures, you're reading about marriage and you find someone and you're seeing what Paul writes about being better to marry than to burn with lust. Well, then you're looking at that and you're saying, well, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I should get married. Whoa, 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 not so fast, not so fast. You know, and, and then all of a sudden, 
for the boys especially, for the men especially, we put a burden on them that is not fair and it is not consistent. And there's a hypocrisy to it. And there's an arbitrariness to it. And there's a folly to it. And no, I don't accept this idea that those young men have got to prove their value and their worth and their merit by shutting up and taking that and just accepting that that's what it is. No, actually, like the challenge should come back on us to not be arbitrary, to not judge by appearances, but to judge with right judgment. The challenge needs to come back on us to be consistent with the scriptures. Yes, they need to be able to provide for the needs of their own household. Absolutely. I think it's great advice to tell young men, hey, you should get your own place. You should get your own transportation. You should be paying your bills and you should have some kind of a plan in place. But I don't think it's a good course of action to tell young men that all of that requires a four-year degree or even a two-year degree or that long engagements are somehow godlier. You know, riddle me this. You know, why, why stop at four years? You know, some kid graduates from high school. He wants to marry his high school sweetheart. And we tell him, no, you're way too young. You know, give it a few years. Finish college first. If you really love her, you will wait for her until she's finished with college and you've finished with college. Never mind that now you're burdened with possibly as much as $200,000 in debt. And if you do get married and if you, if you at that point start taking into account what God's word says about marriage and children and you allow yourself the blessing of having children, well then who's paying those loans back? Or is it just free, right? Costs four and five times as much as it used to to get a college education. But the people who are insisting that these young people have to get college degrees, they didn't pay 20% of what their kids and their grandkids are having to pay. Or more to the point, take on as debt. And then both, both have to go and get this four-year degree. Both have to go get this four-year degree. So essentially what you're doing is you're condemning this young couple when they do get married. If they can wait for four or five years, you're condemning them to either not having children or sending those kids off to daycare and public schools or the husband and father having all of that debt to pay back himself just on his own by himself. That's not fair. That's not How is that wisdom? And if he pushes back on you and he says, no, that doesn't make sense. That's bad. That's bad counsel. Well, then you get huffy. Some of the Paul Washer types, they get all huffy. Oh, uh, if you were really more than just a worthless little pimply adolescent nothing, then you wouldn't dare talk back to me. Well, no, you're, you're a bully. I think what's in question here is not the spiritual maturity of this young man who wants to make an honest woman of the gal he's been interested in for two, three years of high school, it might be you, Paul Washer, and Paul Washer types. You know, and, and what does it happen? What, what, what does it do? What, what happens and, and what does it do to the next generation if we are making our sons and daughters' marriages dependent on 
their economic success or lack thereof, their professional success or lack thereof. What does it do when the recession makes it that much harder for them to get to the point where we have just kind of arbitrarily decided like that's what success looks like when you reach these metrics? You know, we tell them, if you really love her, you should wait four years for her to finish her degree and you to finish your degree. Why, why stop at four, <clears throat> right? Why, why, not, uh, why not tell young people to wait 40 years? Ooh, now there's a love story. Yeah, if you really love her, you wait 40 years to marry her. Yeah, wait, wait until you're retired and then you'll have all this free time. You'll have all this financial independence. You'll probably own your own homes. Have your vehicles paid for? Yeah, wait until you're 60. Yeah. And then we'll give you our blessing and permission to get married. And of course, nobody's telling their kids they have to wait until they're 60. But you know, there, there has to be a moderating principle to our telling these young people to wait, encouraging them en masse, on average, to wait until they're 29 and 30. There has to be some kind of a moderating principle because if you're waiting until you're 30 and 29... How many of those young people are having a hard time conceiving, having a hard time getting pregnant and having a, a child? In part because of the conditions that we've put them in for the first 10 years, the, ten, the first 10 years of their adult lives outside the home in which they would have been the most fertile and the most ready physically I mean, there's a, there's, it's not for no reason, right? Biologically, something is happening in your 20s that makes you so interested. In your teenage years and then in your 20s, makes you so interested in the opposite sex. Systems go. And yet that's the time when we're going to say, oh, no, no, all that energy that you've got, vitality, creativity, like that would be best invested in education and career. And if you don't believe that, if you don't agree, well, then you're a loser and you'll never amount to anything. So what do kids do? They give up on marriage. In part because their parents, in giving counsel like that, have thrown out all other concerns. Everything else must go. Everything else is secondary to professional success, financial success, financial independence. Even though what it takes to get that is increasingly costly and steep. And at a certain point, is it worth it? I don't think so. That's all the time I got for this episode, though. I got to run. More to come, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.